you push farmers too hard all the time and they have to then, you know, make shortcuts in the field and the quality drops down and, and then people don't recognise the difference in quality, they just look at price. And then it's a race to the bottom. The prices are dropping down. Like even farmers nowadays, they're probably getting less per unit of whatever they're producing than they did 20 years ago. And that's just ridiculous because farmers are incredibly innovative and they will come up with solutions, but they must reach a point where they go, oh, come on, this is a bloody enough. And if you look at our society as a whole, it's built on agriculture. And if it's failing, the whole society is failing. So consumers find good farmers and support them. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, if someone walked up to you and say that we really need to save our soils, what would you do? Would you just kind of scratch your head or say, what are you talking about? But what if that someone was in Australia? And I have one of those someones with me today, Mark Rathbone, who in fact named his farm safe our soils, right, Mark? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I actually was going to call my company Real Food Company, but somebody else took that uh, that name. So I called it Save Our Soil, basically to keep myself on track and to remind myself of my purpose. Um, um, because I feel that um, you know a lot of uh, agriculture is tending to diminish soil, and um, I wanted to show ways in which we could produce food and regenerate the soil at the same time. So. Save Our Soil was uh, obviously a good name. Recently, uh, I forgot to register my <laughs> name and someone took it. So I've had to call it Save Our Soil Australia. To, to, and, and, and some people have had Save Our Soil in America and, and other places. So it's a little Well, they're saving more. our soil all over the place. But they are, yes, yes. You know, so, I mean, I guess when you say that, I mean, Australia is a big place. And you got a lot of soil. So, I mean, it's not like you're running out of soil. So, uh, and I know I'm kind of making too little of that, but it does arouse some curiosity of people and say that, well, I'm in the, I'm in the business of farming and I'm raising food a certain way. We're going to talk about what that certain way is. Then I refer to it as save our soils. So you just alluded to the fact that part of that is your own mission to kind of stay on track what your purpose is. We're going to need to expand on that as well. But how do you explain to others that or whether they're neighbors or consumers or others and why they why they need to be concerned about whether you are saving your soils and whether why others should be, quote, saving their soil? Well, I hear a lot in the media that um, our soils are becoming diminished in nutrition. And uh, in actual fact, that's not exactly true. the biology of the soil actually mineralizes or takes into their their bodies the nutrition from the rock, the silt, the sand, the clay, and then they, um, with in association with the plant, they take the minerals out of the soil and put it into their biomass. Then the bacteria eat that, and they um, they exude it at their 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 bodies, whether that through be poop or when they die, and so. I don't think that the soils are actually mineral deficient. It's more that we're losing our biology and biodynamics is, uh, focuses on that greatly. And if we 
improve the biology of our soil, we can actually grow food and regenerate the biology and leave a bit left over for the next lot of crops and for future generations. So uh, that's more about my mission is is um, getting back the biology because some of the new farming methods, because we were conventional farmers in the early days, my father was a, a dairy farmer and he used a lot of um, <coughs> fertiliser, mainly superphosphate, and we found that our soil was getting worse and worse and it was basically because those chemicals that we were adding to the soil were diminishing the biology. The minerals weren't running away anywhere but the biology was, and as a result, our soil got worse and worse. So that's when I, when he went into biodynamics in 1965, I decided just to carry on his work. So I was born in 63, so I don't know any other methodology of farming. Well, so Mark, let's talk about your soil a little bit more. First of all, where your soil is. So I've got people that listen to the podcast that are literally all over the world. But if they, if we could talk them all into flying again, and they jumped on a plane and flew to Australia. Um, if I came down to visit you, where would I fly into it, and how far would I have to drive, and where would it be to, to find uh, you? Yeah, Australia's a big country. It's about the same landmass as America. But uh, we have a huge desert right in the middle, so... Um, a lot of the perimeter is very green and lush and the tropics, of course. But um, the amount of soil that we can farm is diminished because of that desert. So we're uh, right at the uh, – if you were to travel to Melbourne, which is the southernmost capital city of our major continent, and then drive three hours due north from Melbourne, we would be uh, at Kyabram, which is halfway between places called Echuca and Shepparton on the Murray River. and um, that is one of our major rivers in, in Australia. And it's the Murray River borders New South Wales. So um, you've got New South Wales and then above that you've got Queensland. So we're down the bottom, but three hours north of that. So if we get in the, the Melbourne airport, and I, I have been there, um, but drove north and I didn't do that. So if we drove north from there, just, just give me a quick one. Looking out the window, what would I be seeing? What would the land look like as we approach your farm? It is... Uh, Old river flats, uh, which the Murray and the Golden River have formed over millions of years. So all those, uh, we have the great divide between Melbourne and uh, where I live. It's a set of major hills. And, of course, all that's washed away over millions of years and washed down into my area. So it's very flat country, um, Mediterranean in climate. Uh, we have, you know, a really hot day is 45 degrees Celsius which is the, about 120 Fahrenheit in the summer. And then at night, it's down to about 20 degrees, which is 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And then in the wintertime, we have, um, <clears throat> you know, minus three or four degrees Celsius at night, which is about 30, I suppose, freezing point, just below freezing point. And then during the day, we have about 15 Celsius, which is about... Um, uh, 60 degrees so it's very very mild and very good for growing most things and it's a sort of clay type soil but we do range we have silty sandy clay soils and loamy soils as well yeah when you, you mentioned the highs up to 120 there's there's people listening to this that you know fear the fact that in the next few years because of climate change they're going to be seeing more 120s at least you can say well, we can live with it. <laughs> you, uh, we get real close here in Sacramento. In fact, we get up to 112, 114 often, and might get a little warmer in the in the near future if we don't get everything straightened out. But 
Uh, now let's talk a, a little bit. So you've got a farm and you're in that area. You've described it a little bit. Uh, what are the crops that you're growing? Well, um, my father had a, a dairy farm of uh, 400 acres and he retired in 1973 when I was, oh, sorry, when he was age 73, uh, which was about 10, 12 years ago. And I was 48 at the time and always wanted to do something else other than milk cows because I was tired of getting up in the morning <laughs> at yeah. four o'clock. And the cow thing didn't really suit me. My mother's from a veggie side, growing side of the family and um, there was 50 acres on the back of the 400-acre property. So when he retired, um, I'd already paid off over the years my farm and I took over a 50-acre section, uh, which is quite slopey in that it uh, – there's a two-metre drop between the top of the farm and the bottom of the farm. Um, when I'm on Clubhouse, I always say to Shannon that I'm going in the hole, uh, which is the low part of the farm because there's no reception there. So it's um, undulating country. There's, there's very little trees here, uh, basically because my grandfather probably cleared them all. But there is some eucalypts growing around the outside, and um, we have uh, – they're like grasslands, I suppose. And we use those grasses to build our soil for development of vegetable growing. So we grow um, mainly hotter climate things because where I used to go to the farmers markets in Melbourne, they were cooler climates. So they like potatoes and onions and leafy greens and things like that. So I concentrated on sweet potatoes, tomatoes, watermelons, which they struggle to grow with their temperatures. So I've focused more on that. So zucchinis and cucumbers are uh, another crop that I grow well and then in the winter time we grow brassicas uh, broccoli cauliflower cabbages and then a few leafy greens with that um, and I've ventured in, into potatoes which I grow in the summertime but we usually harvest them uh, in the in the autumn as you described what you do as biodynamic farming and you've explained this to me before in conversations that we've had in Clubhouse and so forth, but explain it to others. So uh, you must have to do this almost weekly when you tell people that you're a biodynamic farmer. So what is it you tell them when you when they say, huh, what's a biodynamic? Yeah, it's a, a difficult one at the farmer's market because you've normally only got two seconds to tell them about something because before the next customer's lining up for a watermelon. So because we've got a bit more time here, I'll, I may uh, take a little bit more time to answer that. Sure, go uh, perhaps ahead. We, we can go back in history and um, in the mid to late 1800s, water-soluble fertilisers uh, were brought into commercial reality and some of the farmers started using them in Europe. And some farmers where Steiner was at, I think it was um, Austria, but I'm not, not too sure, were experiencing problems with that. Uh, they found that the animals were losing their health and that the food didn't taste as nice as they were, as it did when they were purely organic. Because before 1800s, everything was organic pretty much. It was grown naturally by peasants who used compost and manures and things like that to fertilise their land. So uh, he had some farmers approach him and say, look, we're having some problems with the new water-soluble fertilisers. Um, you're aware of those. You've done a bit of study, um, the nitrogen, the phosphates mainly, and there was no herbicides or pesticides around in those days. So he he didn't really want to because he was a very busy person. He was a polymath, very intelligent, and was into spirituality. He was into education. He was also into health uh, products and things like that, and also architecture. So he was uh, widely um, read and also 
a lot of experience in, in different things, also philosophy. And uh, so he, in, in the early 1920s, he sat down with these farmers and came up with a um, what they call the agricultural lecture and where he outlined biodynamics on how he might uh, solve their problems. And uh, basically that came down to a series of preparations, which in modern day times we call inoculations, where, where bacteria is mixed with or, or uh, bacteria is harvested from manure and also in uh, a series of animal parts with uh, uh, herbs. And we uh, cultivate certain microbes to go out into the soil or into the compost heaps and act as a probiotic. I'll, I'll have to I have to excuse myself for other biodynamic growers. I'm trying to use easy to understand language, but basically a series of probiotics for soil and for compost so that they can break uh, the organic matter down and the minerals down into a usable form for the um, plants to, to grow in a natural way. And uh, the basis of that is growing cover crops and, um, and also spraying these microbes out uh, digging these cover crops in and then the microbes eat all the cover crops, the organic matter in that, and then they turn it into what we call humus. And humus is the natural plant food that nature makes for all plants to grow. And basically it's organic matter that is fully broken down to a, uh, its last extent or um, where it can't break down any further. So the microbes in there basically go dormant and wait until they get some some food and then they take off again so uh, what we do is um, to harvest those microbes we put manure in cow horns and we bury it we've got our, our organization does that for us and uh, when the cow horns are put in the ground in an aerobic pit where no water is and and uh, they the horns sit in the ground and interact with the soil microbes and the microbes in the in the manure and they they sort of eat part of the horn and, and uh, they they grow and then they turn from manure into this probiotic called 500, which is basically 500 million microbes per teaspoon of, 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 the, the, of the 500. And um, then once that comes out of the ground, we put that into pots. Uh, we then get it out in the autumn when the, the, the soil is warm and moist and we warm water and we stick it into a stirring machine. It aerates for an hour in a vigorous vortex motion. We have specific machines to do that. And then we put that into a special tank and spray those large droplets out onto the pastures and onto the farm soil. And if you can imagine, each droplet might contain, I don't know, a few hundred thousand microbes, and they hit probably every inch of the soil. When they hit the, the soil, they work on the organic matter, eat it all up and multiply and then break that into a, a compost form, if you like, or humus. And then that acts as the plant food for the crops. So that's a very um, squashed version of that, but uh, it, uh, it's the story. basis of it. I yeah. think you did a good job. Let me, there's a couple of things that I think people listening to this would say, um, okay, now hold on here. One thing I want to go back, understand how this is feeding the plant better and what you're doing is making the, the soil better to be able to provide nutrition for the plant but what about pests i mean how does that uh, 
do you still have to use some type of pesticide to be able because they keep the bugs from eating them and all worms and all the other diseases or diseases they can get i mean how does how do you protect against those things well um probably there's two answers to that or two parts of that part number one is if your soil is very aerobic and is full of humus the plant doesn't feed from the water it feeds uh separately through a hair root system and uh so the the plant can drink through its tap roots and it transpires that off so it's like it's breathing if you like it it's taking in water to to make its form and to produce all the leaves and things and it transpires that off uh to cool down and, and all those things and that that water ends up as rain and then it feeds through the hair roots which is attached to the humus and that is basically all the the breakdown matter of all the microbes doing their work so all the fungies and that will bury into the mineral of the soil. Uh, they release acids, which mineralizes it, takes it into their fungal bodies. And then the other microbes eat the fungus mass and also the fungus shares it with the root system. And you've got a very pure natural mineral going up to the soil through the hair, uh, from the soil to the hair roots of the plant. So there's no overload there of nutrient. If the, if the water has nutrient in it through a water-soluble fertilizer, you're more or less force-feeding the plant. And the, um, the salts from that fertilizer go up into the cell of the plant and they become overblown, if you like. And the, the plant can't photosynthesize or transpire properly and it becomes bitter in flavor. And when it becomes bitter in flavor, the microbes or the pests realize this and go, this doesn't look like it's a good plant. And if you understand pests, pests are there to take out the crap. They're recyclers. And if they recognise plant as crap, then they're going to try and eat it. So we find that if we have really good soil, with really good microbes, humus-fed plants, the plants taste sweeter and the, and the uh, pests don't recognise them as rubbish. So that's step one. But step two is sometimes we'll get weather conditions that affect the microbes, like a heavy rain, for example, and the fungus is then uh, sometimes shut off or um, limited in its ability to get those microbes. And in that case, the, the plant then may be less sugary and less sweet and the pest will try to attack it. So we do have some biological um, applications or um, mineral applications which we use to assist the plant to rejuvenate its fungi and get itself back into health and then and then it, the pests won't attack it so that's now are, now are you a, a certified organic uh, operation uh, i'm a certified uh demeter biodynamic farmer so uh, in australia we have we were one of the first to come up with the certification and uh so we have three main certifiers probably have two or three other smaller ones so you can become certified organic uh biodynamic with each of these uh, certifying bodies, but um, yes, we are certified. But you're using uh, you're using products that are not uh, are more natural products that uh, the ones that that you can they can use if there's a pest that you have to be able to to deal with. Then there's certain approved products. For yeah, there's a, a a standard called the Australian um, Biodynamic and Organic uh, Standards Agricultural Standards. 
And on there, they have a list of all the things that you can use. And they're usually mineral or herb-based or biological-based. Uh, there's no synthetic chemicals in there in there whatsoever. So, Or no, you can't be certified organic and have genetic modification. And uh, you can't, in Australia thus far, you can't be hydroponic and be... Um, be organically certified yet but that could change uh there's a bit of pressure from the u.s as far as that's concerned yeah you know mark somebody is listening to this and they're saying did i hear him right did he say cow horn and uh you did <laughs> he did that's i mean that's a little different for most people i mean again i don't even know where you could go get a cow horn today uh, so that, that we kind of kind of move through all that really great explanation but again i know somebody's left scratching their head and saying wait a minute is he using cow horns? <laughs> Explain that. Yeah, well, we actually don't. Uh, the cow horns are uh, a byproduct of the meat industry. They're just discarded at the abattoirs. So we pick them up and use them. But we've got a big collection of them now, although um, they do get some every year. But when the cow, we've, they've tried putting the manure into other um, vessels. Uh, they tried it in wood boxes, clay, uh, ceramic containers, and things like that, and it didn't work. Uh, there's a different product created by putting it in the horn. And I think if you looked at the horn under the microscope, I'm not sure of this, but I think if you looked under it, it would be almost porous. It would breathe air. Um, and also uh, there's something, I think it's called keratin, don't quote me on that, that the manure reacts with. So when we take the manure out of the horn, there's a fungus that grows right along the side of the horn, which indicates that there's something going on there. So it's basically a vessel to hold the manure in place whilst it's in the ground and to keep it aerobic. So we're, we're trying to uh, cultivate aerobic microbes. Otherwise, if you didn't have it in a container, it would just wash away or the worms would take it away and you wouldn't have anything left over. <laughs> so it's kind of a natural vessel that we use. That's the simple version. Do you, I mean, you dig them up, though? I mean, every so often when you're having to work the soil, you get in there and you find horns left from a few seasons ago and that sort of thing? Well, the, the horns are, in our situation, We the Australian Demeter Biodynamic Method uses, makes their, decided in the early days that they would make the preparations for us because uh, we found that some of the farmers were having a go at it and mucking it up and not doing a good job. So they thought rather than do that, we'd make it uniformed and correct. Because it has to be put on the side of, we put it on the side of a hill. Uh, the the soil it's in is very loamy. We don't let the water in. We don't put clay in the top. Otherwise, the microbes can become anaerobic, and we don't want that because that causes pests and disease. So, um, uh, the cow horns are all at one one place, and mm. this particular farm has cows on it but we only harvest the manure. <laughs> so it's a manure sure. farm. And, and so the horns are not on my place as such. They're on another farm south of us. You know, if we skipped all the way to the consumer then, I mean, you've got your production practices. Um, is there a way that they become convinced that they understand how you're producing the product? What causes them to purchase the product? I mean, I... I assume you're getting some feedback on on flavor, and I assume sometimes that they think your prices are too high. They might say so or ask questions about it. But what what has triggered consumers when you take these products to the farmers market in particular 
to to he would say you know they love it or they're coming back and they want to they want to continue to purchase from you uh one of our main benefits with uh biodynamic uh australian demeter biodynamic uh, produce is that it, it it tastes better based on what i've said prior the way the plant feeds on the humus and can transpire correctly and and all of those things make a sugary sweet product so I've used that to my advantage at the farmer's market. I put out watermelons to taste free, free samples, and um, people come along and grab a sample thinking that, oh, I've got away with that, and then they walk 20 metres down the road and turn around and come back and say, look, I've never tasted a watermelon that sweet before in my life. And um, so flavour is the main thing. And we do have a problem with marketing in that, stores which stock our products don't have sampling and if people just looked at the price uh, you know our apple juice is probably double the price but they never get to taste the difference in the flavor so they never uh, sort of make that correlation that it is worth the extra investment but um, the reason it is dearer is because you know we do have you know production restraints or uh, we have to separate it in transport um there is a higher demand for it, so demand can raise the price up. Yeah. So um, if people can overcome and just try, you know, a Demeter product, a biodynamic Demeter product, then they will see that or taste the difference, I'm sure. You know, Mark, you're reminding me that one of the casualties of having the, the pandemic that we're hopefully almost over with uh, is in-store demos. Um it used to be that I could go to the Costco and I could almost make a meal out of everything I could try on a toothpick. <laughs> and, and I was, I was pretty good about trying to buy everything I tasted. So I, I wasn't just looking for a free meal, but I, I loved it. And I've done promotions with uh, commodity organizations before too, particularly going in areas where nobody ate lamb and said, and passed out samples of lamb, beef and pork and say, have them vote on it. And people that had never tasted lamb before in their life said, boy, that's really good. But now you're just reminding me that those, those days are, you really don't see much of any of that anymore because you can't have a hard time people putting samples out. I know even, even the farmer's market's starting to come back a little bit in that regard, but, but they've been got a lot more shy too, as a result of the pandemic. And and I miss it. I want to have samples come back. Yeah. I I did too. I mean, I've actually changed my model to direct sales model, more a click and collect model because I used to really enjoy the farmer's markets because it was open, there was no masks, there was no QR codes, it was really free and it was a lovely experience. And it took me a lot of effort to go to the farmer's market about 26 hours a week. But I enjoyed it so much that I, uh, I, I put up with it. But it got we lost sales when the sampling stopped and it hasn't been around for two years. And... Um, just because the new clients weren't coming through. The old ones were still coming back and I'm still selling most of my stuff, but uh, we weren't able to um, project the benefits of biodynamics to the new customers coming through. It was just another watermelon. So, um, yeah, we, we would like to see that back too, but now my new system doesn't allow that at all. So I pretty much, I'm actually going to put samples in the boxes so that uh, they get a free melon or whatever if they don't order them so that they can try them at home. Yeah, so it doesn't cost much for me to chuck an extra melon in, so I think it's worthwhile. What do you think the the correlation may be between how a, a food tastes and 
how nutritious it, it may be? Well, I, I've said this to you before, and it's my belief that uh, our creator or how we were, you know, designed, uh, however you want to believe that, uh, put our tongue in our head for as the indicator of nutrition, um, and we should just trust in it a bit more. And I'm more relating to fresh produce rather than uh, processed produce because that's they manipulate the taste for us by adding sugar and salt and all the other things. But I'm talking about you know fresh fruit and veg- vegetables and other raw products when you just have to either cook them or just eat them straight. Um, if you really want to find that nutrition, just go and buy several different ones, whether they be organic, biodynamic, conventional, and set them up side by side and say, okay, which one tastes the best? And I feel that that is the true indicator. Unfortunately, science has, has failed us in some respects. Um, we found that, you know, uh, people will believe in one form of production and, uh, and then you can find evidence to say that's the best or that product's the best. And then you can find, on the other hand, science to say the exact opposite. So I think we have to go back to our own, own body to, to represent what's good for us. Well, and if you have the time to be able to talk to someone like yourself and hear them describe the way that they're growing products, you know, you could say, oh, that makes sense. That sounds like a good idea. But then you have to add to hearing a story, you have to add the a taste. And then you can say, well, it tastes great. And, then, and like you're saying, it's probably probably good for you. And I think there is there is some science that's suggesting that correlation with nu- nutrient density and and flavors as well. Yeah. I we talk about polyphenols and all these things nowadays, but I don't understand the science. So I like to uh, speak to the average person and say, well, what can I trust? And I think at the farmer's market, I've found people trust in the flavour of my produce and and they say it's better than what they've tasted. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Well, I think that's fine. I think another, another quick thing to get back is if you've got – your production system, one thing I didn't ask you about is, is there much difference in the yield? And uh, because uh, that in some commodities, that is the case, that they still believe they've, they've got quite a margin that they can produce more per acre, uh, you know, when they're in a conventional system than, say, some of the organic type systems. Well, uh, it, it's unfortunately, we have lots of generalizations within the agriculture community, and that's not the only only place um it does it's so varied in climate and soil and your your what you're growing conditions and um so it's hard to just place a blanket statement over all of that in some years when things are good our grain growers will beat our conventional neighbors but in other years they'll beat them you know hands hands down um in my situation, I uh, have a small farm and I sell absolutely everything I've got. I, I don't really need to produce a lot um, and I sell it at a premium and my costs are really low. So my profit margin at the end of the day is probably the same as theirs, but I, I don't have those figures in front of me. And I think that what farmers may want to look at is, okay, if you took out all your input costs, how much production could you lose and still make the same money? That's the question I'd like to ask. A lot of people because i find a lot of our growers may grow a little bit less but they have one higher margins and they have little or no inputs 
And some of those inputs that the conventional guys use are huge. So, yeah, I don't really know the answer to that, but my question is drop all your inputs and see how much less production you have to need to make the same profit. Well, you actually pose that question to farmers that might be thinking about it, trying to, in an audio book that you've done, it's it's uh, not long, I've had a chance to, to listen to it, and you've you, you walked through it in a, in a way that I would think that farmers in a conventional to say, gee, might this be for me? Uh, and, and in fact, Mark, uh, if, if that's available to people, I'd invite you to let them know where the a website is so that if they would like to go longer than we're covering in a podcast that they might be able to catch what you put into this audio book. Oh, thanks, Roger. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, uh, my website is uh, Save Our Soil, uh, as you as you would normally spell that, .com.au, and on there there's an audio book called Growing Grain Without Chemicals, and it's basically a case study uh, book about three farmers who have been through all the trials and tribulations of uh, transferring over from conventional to biodynamic agriculture and it tells their story what they went through what they do now and the benefits that they've received as a result of that so we're not trying to sell anybody on anything but we know that there's a lot of regenerative agriculture out there now and organic and and there's also some pressure on the farmers to get nitrogen fertilizer and and inputs at a reasonable cost nowadays so i just wanted to, to offer that up as an education point so they can say, oh, well, this is what these guys do. These are the experiences that they're having. Maybe I should consider that. So, And it's a great opportunity nowadays too with some organic certifications and um, you can actually put a plot of your land aside and, and do some trials and see how it goes. And then if it goes well, you can certify that and then progressively move into that. Whereas in the old days, we tended to just go cold turkey and get stuck into it. So... Um, yeah, I just wanted to offer that. We're not trying to sell anybody on anything. We're just trying to offer an education uh, resource for them. So, Mark, I'm wondering, after the a farmer's market, do you sit around and talk with some of the other farmers that are on similar journeys that have also driven three hours from somewhere to get to the Melbourne farmer's market or something like that? Um, what might What might they have in common when they say either what's frustrating or what they're most optimistic about? Well, I think, uh, like me, they've experienced some problems with our current farming model. Um, in the, when we were on the dairy farm, we were a production model and we sold to one milk company. And a lot of farmers have one or two clients, them commodity or base or whatever. And the problem I find with that is you get given the price that they feel is fair. And I find that in all other businesses, whether you be a plumber or electrician or retail store, you get to make the price. And I actually feel that this is the downfall of our agricultural system in that you push farmers too hard all the time and they have to then, you know, make shortcuts in the field and the quality drops down and, and then people don't recognise the difference in quality, they just look at price. And then it's a race to the bottom. The prices are dropping down. Like even farmers nowadays, they're probably getting less per unit of whatever they're producing than they did 20 years ago. And that's just ridiculous because farmers are incredibly innovative and they will come up with solutions. But they must reach a point where they go, oh, come on, this is a bloody enough. And I found when I, uh, at the farmer's market, that the blokes that I was uh, dealing with all thought, bugger this, I'm going to go direct to the clients 
have 300 clients instead of one client and then say to them, say, well, look, this is the price I need for my produce in order to make a living. And the clients are happy to receive it because they can uh, see the quality. And I feel that that system, which is really the old system of, um, you know, going to market and selling your produce to locally, is probably the best system for our society. And if you look at our society as a whole, it's built on agriculture. And if it's failing, the whole society is failing. So I know that's a big jump, but uh, that's my feeling on it anyway. Well, it's a feeling I'm sure is shared. And to have that feeling shared more with consumers, um, I mean, what's a consumer to do? Is there anything other than uh, support biodynamic farming that uh, that consumers that say, oh, I get it. And I uh, I support this kind of farming system doing better than it is right now. Um, what's a consumer or a voter to do? Anything? Yeah, well, I would... Uh... If a consumer wants to see the agricultural system change, I would recommend going to a farmer's market or going to a community-supported agricultural system somewhere where the individual farmer is recognised for their good work. Because there's some really good conventional farmers out there, some really good organic farmers, um, and the individual the individuality has been taken away from the farmer. Everything's generic branded nowadays, and they're losing their identity. And I feel that... Um, that identity needs to bring back so that we can hone in on quality growers and then they are, you know, um, they're um, paid more for what they do, for the good work that they do. And I feel by that system then we're improving our quality of our food all the time, improving the health of our community all, all the time rather, rather than this race to the bottom on price. So um, I, that's what, if so, my summary for that is consumers find good farmers and support them. Good place to wrap it up, Mark. And I wish it wasn't so far away to find your farm. I um, I may show up at the Melbourne Farmers Market sometime. Uh, <laughs> I hope to. But thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host Roger Wasson. 